Welcome to the Approachable Equestrian Podcast, a place where we dive deep into all things mindset, motivation, and stories that inspire. I am your host, Brianna Burke, fellow equestrian, rider, and competitor, and I am determined to shine a light on all things inclusive in the equestrian community. With that said, let's jump in to today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 28 of the Approachable Equestrian Podcast. Today was really cool, something a little different. I got to speak to the wonderful Beth from Sydney Equine Practice. She is a vet who specializes in lameness and rehab. And it was really interesting talking to her about her journey of how she became a vet and also what she does in her day-to-day life, how she juggles it all, and also just some top tips about when to call a vet, when to know if it's appropriate or not, and yeah, just to help you stress a bit less and create a better relationship with your own vet. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. I absolutely loved her recording it with Beth. She was so kind and so easy to talk to. So yeah, just love it. And if you like what you hear, please hit subscribe and also leave a rating and review on iTunes and also you can actually leave ratings now on Spotify so that's very exciting and if you could take 10 seconds it would absolutely mean the world. So here we have it let's introduce Beth from Sydney Equine Practice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today it's very exciting. Oh you are welcome no I'm so happy to be here I've definitely listened to a lot of it and uh Yes, I think it's a really great, really great effort to do it for the community. Awesome. Thank you. And could you please tell us about yourself and what you do in your day-to-day life now and how you came to, I guess, come on the podcast? Yeah. Um, I mean, my day-to-day life now consists of being a horse vet. So I work Sydney Equine Practice, have for the last sort of two and a half years. If we want to stretch way back into the, you know, regions of my past, I started riding when I was five. Horses have always been a sort of staple in my life, but similar to you, I started with very non-horsey everything, and yep. so I uh, had to work for it myself, did all of the after-school horse riding lessons and the school holiday camps and all of that sort of thing. I remember when my parents realised probably about five years into school holiday programs every year that I wasn't going through a phase, <laughs> and uh, my dad actually made me write an essay to lay out how I would find the horse, where I would keep the horse, where I would pay, like how I would pay for the horse and everything. I had to have it all written out. And so, yes, I did that. And then I got my first horse. And oh, that's exciting. How old would you have been then? I think I was about 14. Oh, wow. So you really proved yourself. Like that's yeah, a lot yeah. of years that's going it. back again and yeah, again. So that's a lot of, we had family friends who had horses on a farm um, just outside of Yass because I grew up in Canberra. Oh, yep, cool. Uh, so nice bush capital, lots of space. But, yeah, so we did lots of riding then and then got my first, you know, off-the-track thoroughbred for yep, 900 project. Yep, And uh, did that for a few years and then moved to Wagga and did my first degree at Wagga at the Charles State University. I did the Bachelor of Equine Science because, obviously, being a horsey nerd, I was all up for so that. So into it, yep. Sold my horse before I left and got a new one up there. And then was up there for a year and then moved back to Canberra, actually, got my first eventer. Another oh, so you're, you've done eventing. Yes, did my foray into eventing for while I was at uni. So I did distance ed and competed full-time and rode, like worked and worked at the track, actually. Started working at the Canberra race track when I was about, well, gosh, I started there when I was about 15 and then kept through, like came back to it. Yeah, that. but yeah, just was very everything was about the horses. And once I graduated, so I did that. I graduated. Gosh, now I've got to go back into my memory. I graduated that in two thousand five, and had been looking for jobs and things, and was thought there are no horse jobs. There's oh. nothing that you can do that's like super horsey. So I ended up getting a job in the government because Canberra. Canberra, yep. So yep. many government jobs. Oh, uh, it's just you just trip over into a government job it's great in the public Uh, service yep yeah and so yeah I did that for a while and just was never happy behind a desk I worked for um, the department of agriculture so did live animal importing okay cool all the paperwork behind that I was there at the tail end of the whole EI debacle oh the equine influenza in 2007 
That was um, that no. was nuts time. That would have been really insane for your job. I remember having to when the when the influenza broke out, you know, going to visit my horse, I had to get in the paint suit and I had to put masks on and rubber boots and then we had to hose off and it was really intense. That would have been crazy for your job. Yeah, yeah. So working in uh in horse live horse imports at the time was uh yeah, that was it was intense. We had to do lots and lots of training with all of the ground staff at the airport. Uh everything had to come through full quarantine. Yeah. Um yeah, so I got the fun job of rewriting all of the import procedures and so <laughs> yes, I would have been the joyous person who would have said you need to wear a white suit and gloves and this is how you have to put them on and this is so how you, you were, them on. So you were one of the people that helped us get through. So thank you because you know, I think it could have been a lot worse yeah. than it was. I was quite young at the time, but I even understood the gravity of it. I just remember, yeah. you know, everyone took it extremely seriously. So obviously you got through to people. Yeah, yeah. No, we got it all through and then we cleared the country, which was nice. So we can we got our if EI only, freedom back. If only the government knew how to slow down the, <laughs> the current pandemic for humans. Right. We we nipped an outbreak in the bud. What are they doing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Didn't get much past Sydney. Yeah. But, yeah, so I did that. I really, I enjoyed the work. Like, it was really interesting, but I just hated showing up at a desk. Yeah, yeah, hated showing up at a desk every day. And I got to work with a lot of vets in the government. And I'm also having horses, you deal with vets because they invariably break themselves right before a competition or, Always. you know, the most awkward time. And, yeah. Yep. So I definitely dealt with vets before. I had never had never really been one of those kids who was like, I want to be a vet. But yeah, it kind of grew on me. Just being in real life and thinking, being where life, is my path? Yeah. yeah, just feeling like, what do I enjoy doing? Uh, if I put everything that I enjoy doing together, what does that look like in a job? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, working with animals was always something I enjoyed doing. So I went the long way around. I didn't do. I didn't get into vet at Sydney until I was. I don't think I did that till I was twenty seven. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely there's always that's what I've always said to everyone. You can always, if you don't like what you do, do Take something care. else. Yeah, because you you do that for so much of your life. You know, you spend eight hours or more every day doing yep. your job. If you don't like it, there's no point in just slogging away. And for anybody sitting at a desk thinking, oh, I hate my job. I hate what I do, you know, I'm not passionate about it. You need to be lit up. Do what drives you, you know. I love that you chased after what you wanted to do. It's the best, the ultimate. Yeah. And and it's, yeah, I was never a real academic person at, in, like, school, so I never thought I'd go out and do vet or anything like that because It's a tough degree. Yeah. You know, you've got to get up in the 98s to get straight out of school, and I definitely was not that smart. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I went the roundabout way, but I'm really glad that I pursued it. And, you know, I, in amongst all of the things that I was doing and working with the government, I got married in 2006, so long time ago now. And he is, to this day, not a horsey person. Um, Same with my husband. It's, I, I feel like it's a good balance sometimes. I, yeah, I feel like, yeah, it's, it, he definitely has tempered things down, but he also is a steady income. <laughs> When I when I threw it at him one night over dinner, I was like, I think I want to go back to school, like university, for yeah. like six years. He was like, oh, um, cool. How do we work this out? So my That's... poor husband who had just started, he, two years into his new job, rang them up and said, well, actually, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm resigning and moving to Sydney so that my wife can go to school. Wow. Wow. That's when so, you know you're on to a winner, when he supports you no matter what. Exactly. So, yeah, so he got a new job up in Sydney and we moved up to Sydney and, yeah, I spent six years at the University of Sydney doing a – I did a master's in animal nutrition and then five years of vet. Wow. Um, and it was it was hard. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. It was, it was hard. Yeah. And harder, I think, coming out of school and being a mature age student. Yeah. Um, because then you've got like when you're when you go straight from school, you've got no real responsibilities. responsibilities. Yeah. And so you're like, oh yeah, I can just go and do whatever I want. But I'm like, oh well, I've got to make sure I'm home because you know we're going out to do this with friends and we've got dinners or whatever. And I had a dog at the time, and 
So I had to get home and walk him. And So while you were at uni, were you still riding or you weren't able to continue both? So I sold my horse before we left Canberra because I thought I can't. I looked into like having a horse in Sydney and holy moly, it's more than our rent because we wanted to live in the city to be close to the uni so I didn't have to you know, travel in and out too much. Yeah. I actually ended up, me and a couple of the other girls in the class who were horsey, went over to Centennial Park and actually just rode for people. Yeah. Um, you know, so you just kind of go in there and say, hi, I'm a capable horse person with no horse. Can I, you know, ride your horse? Exercise horses for you. That's yeah. awesome. So went and did a bit of that in my, you know, not so spare time and uh, uh, had a bit of fun, had some friends with horses and so I kept able to like just dabble in and get on a horse every couple of weeks and it was that was pretty good um really sydney is is not great for large animal (laughs) they don't do a lot of large animal focus in the vet course okay great, great vet course um but yeah it was very very small animal focused so i really had to work hard to make sure i did sort of additional study on the side and i was the Equine Veterinary Australia rep for the for my uni, and so I went to Bain Fallon, the big equine vet conference. I was a student volunteer there for three years, and student volunteer for the EVA at Equitana for two years, and so got my hand in as many places as I could. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that's what you have to do: just constantly put yourself out there to you know get where you want to go, and you know. Just not be so shy and keep moving forward and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, got through all that. Um, so that I graduated in 2015. Yep. From vet and, yeah, jumped on a plane and moved to America. So that was my that was my trade-off. So my husband then decided that he would do his MBA at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. Wow. That's a big business he, school, isn't it? Yeah, big business school. So he, yeah. Um, yeah, he said, I've. Oh, spent six years supporting you you can uh now it's your turn to earn the money and I'll go back to school so we went over there and lived in Philadelphia and I honestly I looked very hard into getting a horse job in the U.S. I looked into the New Bolton Center the University of Pennsylvania has their big equine center out there and they said sure you can come and be an intern it's an hour and a half drive from Philadelphia um, and we'll pay you $25,000 a year oh wow that would have been a little bit tough to manage. I said, well, uh, since I'll be the sole income earner and I, we won't have a car, it's probably not a good option. And I've only so, spent how much money to get a degree in the first place and how many years mm-hmm. training to be qualified to do these things. Yeah. You know, maybe not the right payoff for what you've put in already. Yeah. So I thought, look, it's probably going to be a fairly short-term venture in the U.S., so I went and got a small animal job, just worked with dogs and cats. Um, yeah. And look, it was a really great base. I learned a huge amount in like client communication and, you know, small animal medicine, surgery, uh, did everything there. So we were in Philly for two years and then we moved to New York. We are in New York for my husband got a job out after school. So then we were in New York and Manhattan for two and a half years. It's pretty cool. Another small animal job because I thought, I don't know how long we'll last in Manhattan. It's very busy and very intense. Yeah. Fun. I would never, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't trade it for the world the time we spent there, but it meant that we could live in the city and I could work in the city and didn't have to travel or anything. But yeah. So then. It's been an insane journey. It's been a lot. Yeah. It's been a lot. But it's funny when you don't really think about it until you talk about it out loud and then you're like, oh, yeah. I've actually done a lot of stuff. Wow. Yeah, see, it's so funny. Like they they say that people generally fear change more than they fear death, and (laughs) which is crazy to think that if you stop and actually like watch people's habits and, you know, they do, they avoid change like the plague and you've just gone, all right, well, I'll, you know, I'll move over here. I'll go with the government in Canberra. Oh, actually, I'm going to do uni. Okay, and I'll sell my inventor and, you know, and then let's move across the world. And, like, that's just, that's huge change. What was, what made you stay sane and stay, like, okay mentally with all that change? Oh, look, I think having a stable support base. Like, my parents are always really supportive. 
in what we did. They were like, oh, cool, you want to go to America? Sure, yep, that's cool. We'll come visit. Wow, my that's sister is, My sister's done a lot of travel. She's actually in international health policy, so she travels all around the world speaking. She's a professor in uh, international health policy at the University of Sydney, so oh, wow. she travels a heap. So we're kind of used to our family being a bit disparate. My, I'm actually closet American. <laughs> my whole family, my parents and my sister are here and the rest of our family is in the U.S. anyway. Oh, wow. Um, cool. So you so, still even had support while you were over there. Yeah, so we had family over there, um, not super close to where we were. We had an aunt and uncle close, but, uh, yeah, I think it was always just even growing up we went back to the U.S. to visit family. It was and like a second home. So it's kind of like travelling was not foreign to me. And so I thought, you know, my parents up and moved to Australia when my sister was three, and uh, when I was they, I was born here like a month after they arrived. But I think, yeah, travel for me has always just been like, oh yeah, of course, we'll just go over there and do that for a while and try something new. And my husband is pretty like he's a very stable person too, so he's a good grounding point for things and yeah, always and up for anything too. Yeah. See, it's funny, I, you know, like you speaking about your husband being so stable and I know this is really left field, but I just, just came to me, but my, you know, I noticed with so many friends and even just not even friends, but acquaintances and, you know, they get really sucked up in the drama of relationships and they forget that you're best to choose somebody who you can see yourself just you know, having a great life with when you're old one day, chilling on a porch, like going, wow, that was a cool ride. Not like, oh, remember all those arguments we had and the, the drama and the heat of it all. It's like that, none of that matters. And yeah, I think definitely having that support base would be, you know, I guess key for travel. So yeah. So what made uh, you decide to come back? Uh, twins. Okay. Yeah. So can so- we get into that? That is a whole big thing to unpack. Yeah, so we uh, found out we were having twins mid, uh, I guess that would have been 2018. So August-ish 2018, we found out we were having twins and we were like, oh, shoot. Um, yeah, what is cool. that like when you found that information out? That would have been massive. Yeah, so, I mean, we had already talked about having a family, so it wasn't a shock to be going down the road of having a family because we were like, look, it's never going to be a good time. That's yeah. one of the things that I've always, like, I've talked to heaps of my friends. They're all, you know. They'll I've, never be ready. Right from, we've got friends right from executives to, you know, startup like people and just a huge range of people that we know. And you always, you know, you always end up, I don't know, it's, it's got to be a, a woman thing. You always end up having that conversation of when do you guys think is a good time to have kids? Like, yeah. you, when, have you guys thought about it? Do you think, like, when when is a good time? And we've always come to the conclusion that it's not ever a good time. You know, as a woman, you have to write off a good 12 months of your life. Yeah. By the time you get through being pregnant for nine months and then three months postpartum, at least you're recovering. Yeah. It's it's a solid 12 months of slog. (laughs) And so it's just not like there's no sort of sugarcoating it. It's just not. And so my husband and I had sort of said, look, he was working again, so we thought, look, if I've got to be off work for a little while, that's okay. I had a good job. It was really, like, it's easier for sure to be pregnant as a small animal vet than as yes. a horse vet. I've, I mean, I've not been pregnant as a horse vet, but I am a horse vet, and I know it would be very hard yeah. in my job. Like from a danger factor or just a physical? Yeah, I think both, like everything. I mean, a huge problem at the moment would be x-rays. So I do a heap of x-rays oh, and you can't do it all when you're pregnant yeah um and then also you know you've got to pick stuff up you got to get in and out of your car all the time you're always lugging heavy equipment everywhere and you know that's the sort of thing but um but yeah in the when we we're in the u.s i i mean i'm a very type a organized person so basically the moment we were like at that after that first trimester and we were allowed to tell people we had fun dropping that bomb on our entire family from, you know, over Skype. Wow. And then I just sort of systematically went through and said, okay, I'm going to need people to come over and visit in shifts and you're going to stay for two weeks and you're going to help and it's going to start with our sisters. My husband has a sister and I've got a sister. I said, you two will be coming over in the first round because they'll be the smallest and we need the youngest, most useful people who have already had children. 
Yeah. So you can stay for two weeks and then. And the younger ones can deal better with the sleep deprivation. Is that exactly? The yeah. 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 <laughs> and they also most recently had. So my sister's got two daughters, and my sister-in-law has three kids. So two sons and a daughter. And uh, so we're like, you you most recently remember what it's like to have a tiny baby. So that'll be the most useful. So for the first three months, we had rotating family staying in our tiny two-bedroom New York apartment. See, now that is an idea. I love your thought process behind that. Like talk about having a plan. Yep. And that's, yeah, one of the biggest things that I'll say to anyone who has kids, whether you've got one, two, three, however many you have, help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Yeah. Because I've met so many people who have said, oh, those first few months they were just terrible. I didn't get any sleep. I, de- you know, never got my hair done. I never took a shower. A shower. And, and I said, you know what? Like, you know, I'm not going to put too fine a point on it, but I had twins and I got up every morning and I took a shower and I got dressed. Mm-hmm. And that was my, like, it, it's small, but that was my self-care. And I said, yeah. you know, I'm going to take start a shower the day. every day. And I'm going to get dressed. So I'm not going to hang around in my pajamas all day. And It does make you feel a bit gross and, you know, you never, like, you never on the front foot. You feel like yeah. you're awake if no. you're not showered and dressed, I feel. I think also it might sound silly, but my dog really got me through a lot of it because I had to go outside twice a day yeah. to take him for a walk. So that was my, my mental like break was no I've got to go whether I've got a baby up to me or not I don't care I'm going outside I'm going to go for a good long walk with my dog and then I can come back and it just gives you a mental break of just being outside and away and I think that's yeah one of my big things is just being outside I can't I'm not I could never be one of those people who sits inside all day yeah I have to be outside I can imagine well especially seeing as you've gone into large animal vet you know So yeah, yeah. then, so you you came back to Sydney with the twins, so you'd already had them by the time you came back. Yeah, so they were six months old when we moved back. They were born March 2019 and we moved back September 2019, which actually worked out in pandemic timing very well. Yeah. Because we weren't stuck in a tiny apartment in the middle of Manhattan during the pandemic. Yeah. So, yeah, that worked out. I actually got my job before we came back. That's That was a funny story in itself because we were talking about moving home. When are we going to move back? You know, should we wait until they're a year? Should we do this? Should we do that? And I said, look, I'm going to go on Kookaburra. That's the, you know, vets and vet nurses job site in Australia. Okay. Yep. I jumped on there and thought, all right, what's a what's an equine job? I said, that's it. I'm done with dogs and cats. I want to work with horses again. And I jumped on there and I found this job ad and it was funny because it didn't originally look like it was something that I wanted to do because obviously I don't know we didn't have the job very well because it was based it said it was based in Mittagong and I thought oh I don't really want to work in Mittagong and my husband said look just give him a call send him an email send him an email and see what they say and so I did that and uh had a chat with David he's the owner of the business and long story short i left my three-month-old babies with my parents and my husband, flew to Australia for four days wow. to, to do a two-day working interview with my now boss and, uh, yeah, got back to the U.S. and the next week he rang and offered me the job and I said, oh, okay, sure. Well, we're living in America and it's currently July. I was like, I can start in uh, when? I said, I could start in September. <laughs> So I think I could get my shit together and quit my job and get my whole life together in a couple of months. Yep, let's do it. (laughs) Wow. See, now that's a leap of faith. Can I – I had a thought pop up and can I just ask, so me for myself, I get really nervous about starting something and worrying that I'm not going to finish it and committing to things. So when it came to – because – Clearly you're like a dive-in type person, but when it came to like, you know, committing to all that study to become the vet, to obviously get the job that you really want to get, like were you ever worried, like obviously, you know, uprooting yourself, your husband, going to Sydney, starting a whole uni course without worried that you were ever going to finish it or was that never never a thought for you? No, look, at that never occurred to me that I wouldn't finish it. I mean, you've said that and now I'm thinking about it, but no. <laughs> I don't think it ever crossed my mind that I wouldn't finish it. Certainly crossed my mind 
what I would do at the end of it. Yeah. And, you know, there were definite points during the course where I was like, oh, God, is this what I want to do? What am I doing? But I thought, no, no, I've started it. And you know what? At the end of it, even if I have a veterinary degree and I go back and work in the government, it's still something that I've done. Yeah. I like that attitude. That's really good. Yeah. I just think once you've gone that far into something, you just have to keep going. But yes, no, I think your description of me being a throw myself in type person is fairly accurate. Cool, cool. It doesn't always work out the best. Sometimes I throw myself into things and it's... I don't know. It sounds like it's been pretty good so far. You know, you've got your husband, you've got your uni degree, you've got the experience of living overseas. Like, Yeah, I think definitely my throw-ins have been more successful than not. Yeah. Uh, as a as a you know, yeah, as you kind of wind it together. My pros outweigh my cons. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it, especially when especially if you're in the middle of one of the cons, you're like, Oh, everything's crap, but then look back, check it out, see how you go. So sorry, side topic, but hey, anyway, you're right. back, back to where we were. So you've got the job. So did it end up being in Mittagong or? Yes, yeah, so look the funny thing is we're totally ambulatory. So my Prado's parked out front of my house and that's where I start every morning. Our office, we have an office in Mittagong. So okay. all of our drugs and our office lady live, like they're all down in Mittagong. So twice a week at the moment I drive down to Mittagong and we've got clients down there. So obviously Laura Wallace lives down that way and we do stud work for Silverdale, Milburn Creek, a bunch of different studs down there and there are a few other small performance horse people and things down, down that way. So I'm usually busy when I go down that way but yes so it did yeah once I had once I actually talked to David and he was like oh no we do lots of work at uh like we do heaps of work at Randwick so the racetrack and Rose Hill and so which is more yeah. Sydney based for anyone that doesn't know yeah yeah, yeah. so it's it, it worked out really well and yes I have a, a debt of gratitude to my boss for going out on a limb and hiring me because obviously I'd been out for four and a half years but only done small animal work. Yeah. So he, he's having to base his decision on me being a horse person from, you know, back in the day. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, definitely very grateful for him to uh, have taken that leap and got me on. And I think it works out that we, we get along really well. So That's so um, good. So now with your massive schedule, I'm guessing, I'm assuming you have quite a large schedule when it comes to all your vet work. But with your large schedule and having twins nonetheless, how do you go managing your day-to-day life with all of that? Because I know a lot of people on here will obviously consider it more from a riding perspective, but still, how do you find obviously juggling twin boys and then your work life? So somebody else could obviously think of that as maybe their riding life or whichever, but yeah, how do you manage it all? Um, A lot of support. We actually have had living au pairs. So we've been in the fortunate position to have a place where we could, we have a spare bedroom and so we've had live-in au pairs. So she, the current girl who lives with us, she's from Brazil. Yep. And she basically looks after them at home. See, now that would be an idea for riders to, yeah. if they have a spare room and it works out quite cost-effective, doesn't it, as well? for Yeah. 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 So it, it's about half the price of doing daycare. Yeah. Okay. Particularly with the two of them. Well, it's and the same for anybody that has maybe a one and a three-year-old, you know, and you exactly. want to have yep. your, if you're a full-time rider and things like that, that's, yeah. Okay, I'm glad I asked that question now because I'm thinking about it for my future as well. How do I fit it all in with my horses? And and the great thing is that because, I mean, I was worried about daycare and things because they don't open until 7.30 or 8 and I'm out the door by 7 most mornings. Yeah. So, and then that, you know, don't want to leave my husband, my poor husband, to have to, you know, wake them up, feed them, dress them, get them ready, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, just having someone at the house. And, I mean, it's definitely a gamble, you know. You've got to get the right one. And some people wouldn't like it, I don't think, having somebody else in your house. Yeah. Um, I think that can be a bit confronting for some people not wanting them, you know, wanting to have your own space. Yeah. Whereas I'm a diehard extrovert, so... Throw me people anytime doesn't bother me. Yeah, I, I just treat her like family. You know, if she's around, she's around. If she's not, she's not. She lets us know when she's going to be home for dinner. Otherwise, you know, we just kind of function like housemates. Yeah, and you know, the boys love her, and she's been great. So that I mean, really, that's how I've 
managed it. Also, we're really careful about work-life balance. So last year, David had a baby, so he's a bit more familiar now with what it's like to have kids at home. And he's been really great with just making sure that work-life balance is a forefront of everyone, you know. I do start early, but I'm usually home by 3, 3.30, so, you know, and I write reports and do other things, but I can do them from home. And so it's not not, not really been a a real issue with spending time with them. We only – we trade weekends, so I only work every other weekend. Yeah. So – yeah, I get a fair bit of time at home. I think it's it's also being really upfront with anyone that you work with. Yeah. Just saying, you know, I have a family and I want to hang out with them. Being good enough to be protective of it and saying, this is my rule. Please my respect it, day. yeah. And I said, look, I've got kids and, you know, funnily enough, I'd like to hang out with them. Sometimes. <laughs> I quite like them. Somehow I want to be around them. So, yeah, he was very respectful. You know, I just sort of said, look, I don't want to be home any later than 4 o'clock. Some days I get it. I've got appointments I've got to go to. I've got an emergency. Something pops up. Fine. Yeah, I'll do it. But as a general rule, I'm very protective of being home and hanging out with my family in the evenings and on weekends. And, yeah, it's been really good. Yeah, so, that's so good. What a that, good leap to take. I, I think it paid off. Yeah, 100%. No, it's been really great. I'm very glad. I love love my job and my team and being back in Australia. Um, and finally working with the large animals. Finally working back on the horses, it makes me happy. I have to admit it is a lot further away from everything. Spending that time in the US when it's like, oh, look, these people, we're, we're just going to go to Paris for four days. Okay, cool. You know. Yeah, you wouldn't do that. 400, like, bucks, 400 yeah. bucks return and, a, and an eight-hour flight. Wow. Whereas Australia, it's like, oh, we want to go to Paris. We'll plan it a year in advance and take three weeks' holidays and 24 <laughs> and hours of transit and yeah. $3,000 and, and the rest. But anyway, yeah, it's been an adjustment, but it's been nice being back with family. Yeah. So with your position with the horses now, you specialise in sort of lameness and rehab with horses. Is that right? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we work with racehorses. So I generally just lump them all in the bucket of high-level performance horses. Yeah. So racehorses, eventers, show jumpers, dressage, it's all, it's all very similar in that you've got very highly tuned athletes and they get injured. Yeah. And it's, it's a constant flux of adjustment. Yeah. So, yeah, we do a lot with lameness because that's sort of, that's what you get in high-level performance horses. Every now and then you'll get an injury, you know, a cut, an abscess, something else. But most of the work is lameness and rehabilitating from that lameness. Is there anything Uh, that you could offer us as like some hot tips? So for, say, eventers, jumpers, even obviously dressage riders, any riders really, is there anything that you have like pet peeves about that you see that people do or even put on their horses? Like are you, I don't know, just top tips for longevity with the horses? Oh, look, I mean, it's it's a laundry list, but I mean, I think shoeing and confirmation is massive with soundness. Yeah. So making sure that you've, you've really taken care of your horse in terms of getting them shod properly and regularly because, you know, you put the angles off and the feet and it just travels all the way up, particularly if you've got a big warm blood or something that, you know, the yeah. feet, the angles, they'll put different tension on the tendons and ligaments that can't deal with it. So I think that's a really big one is keeping an eye on the feet um, yeah. and how their shoeing is. <sighs> Look, I think not pushing horses past where they are. And I think most performance riders are really good at managing where they're at in terms of fitness and making sure that they're training at home bigger than they're out competing to make sure that you're not pushing it. But, I mean, often what I find is that the big lamenesses that do crop up, unfortunately, are just going to happen. Accidents most of the time? Yeah, they're freak instances that, you know, they just landed wrong off a jump. Or you were out hacking and it just happened to be a hole in the paddock and it tweaked its tendon. Or genetically its conformation wasn't great and so over time it'll just wear on that certain thing. I think one of the biggest things is identifying lameness early and not just saying, oh, I'll just give it butte for a couple of weeks and see how it goes. Okay, yeah, that's a big that's, one. I that's think one of the happens. things, yeah, a lot of people will just say, oh, it's been lame for about two months now. 
uh, on and off, and I've just been giving it butte, and then it's come good, and then I've kept riding it. And yeah, okay. Then it, it becomes a big problem. Yeah. So when is when is the time to call you? You know, like <laughs> if I, if it, you know if we've got our horses going, and say for instance, exactly like that, you know, your horse is a bit off or something like that. Is it like oh, quick, call the vet straight away, no matter what, or is it you know analyze for a little bit, maybe? Like, is there an amount of days you would go off or anything like that? I mean, look, that's it's such a, you know, how long is a piece of string because it really depends on the horse. It depends on the extent of lameness, the knowledge of the rider. Yeah. You know, I mean, if your horse is hopping lame and it's got a big digital pulse and a hot foot, it probably has an abscess. Yeah. You know, it's sort of one of those things where people who have been around horses a lot and have dealt with horses a lot. Know what they know what to look for. I know um, abscesses are horrible, but I I must admit I get very relieved when I'm like, yes, it's a just an abscess because yep, you always yep. go straight to the worst. You're like, oh, has it blown a tendon? Has it done this? Has it done that? And then you're like, no, it's that sweet little thing that just needs to come out. Yep, it's just a couple of weeks off work and back yep. in. Yeah, a couple of poultices. But yeah, look, I mean, I think it's a it's definitely. It's a hard call to make to say, you know, on one hand, I don't want to say sit on it, watch it, don't call your vet, but I know that people want to be a bit sensitive about, you know, not jumping onto the vet at every little off step and things like that. I mean, I think it's you you all know your horses and that's the, the biggest thing is I fully respect that riders know their horse far better than I do. I've gone out to people who have said, look, my horse is off. It's not right. And I've had every other vet who said, no, it's fine, keep going, it's fine, keep going, but it doesn't feel right. And I think you have to respect the fact that they're on that horse every day and they ride that horse and they know if it's just not stepping through with one leg properly, so it's not actively lame, but it's just a bit uneven, and it normally that's doesn't as much of a lameness. Yeah. It's as much of a lameness as a head-bobbing foot abscess. Yeah. You know, and I think I think being sensitive in that sense of saying, you know, yep, I did go to school for a long time and I do have a lot of experience, but I don't know your horse. I guess just not getting ahead of myself instead of saying, oh, you're being silly, like the horse doesn't have a lameness, I can't see any lameness, you know. Yeah, so that's not exactly think- like you're going to say, all right, let me up, I'll sit on it, I'll feel what you're feeling. It's not, you know, that's yeah, a hard thing as well. it doesn't quite work that way. So it's kind of like you need to advocate for your horse sometimes, like if you really know, like maybe get more opinions or, yeah. yeah. I think definitely just trusting yourself and saying, look, I I respect that you as the vet know what you're talking about, but please listen, there is something wrong with my horse. Yeah, like you might see one thing, but I I know my horse and I know when it's off and what it's feeling and, yeah. I think, yeah, riders advocating for their horse and I think, Look, one of the things that I really appreciate with the clients that we have is that we we generally, I would say, like 80 or 90% of my work is with this, uh, the same clientele. So I'll go back and see, you know, I'll go back to the same adjustment property and, you know, it's not that the horse is always lame or always sick, but, you know, I might see it and then again in a month I'll see it and I get to build up a relationship with the owners yeah. where, you know, it means that I'm I'm happy enough for most of the clients that I see to give me a ring and say, look, so-and-so, I rode him yesterday, he wasn't right, I put him out, I've ridden him again today, he still isn't right, you know, what should I do? And yeah. they can you know, either text me a video, I love all of this new smartphones and technology because I can say, get somebody to take a video of you riding or lunge your horse and sh- send me a video and I can say generally, you know, I mean, obviously I'm not a super vet, I can't diagnose things off a video. But a lot of times you can say, yeah, look, I need to come out and see that or give it a couple of days and you'll be, you know, we'll see how it progresses. Yeah. Um, But I think just building that relationship with a particular vet just so that you can have that rapport with them because most vets I know would be more than happy to pick up the phone and say, okay, tell me what's going on, send me a picture, send me a video. Yeah. And if I don't have to come out, I don't have to come out. Yeah. it's it's not that we don't want to come out. It's that if I don't have to, you know, because if I walk onto your property, I need to charge you an exam fee. Yeah, 100%. you know what I mean. Mm. And if I can look at a picture of it and say, "Oh no, look, that's a, you know, 
your horse has grazed itself, clean it up, put on some white healer, you know, it'll be okay. Or, no, look, there's a big fluff of skin hanging off that and we need to stitch it and give it, put it on antibiotics. I'll definitely come out today. You know, <laughs> I'll come out today and we can sort it out. Yeah, I think less, you know, it's less about knowing exactly when to, you know, being able to give you a prescription, you know, I'm not going to give you a, a tree diagram of if this, then this, if this, then this. Yeah, 100%. No, but, I just, uh, I remember when I was younger and a bit less informed, I would be terrified to call a vet. I was like, I'm going to get a $10,000 vet bill and it's going to be insane. And and it's funny because the longer that I've gone on and, and like you said, built a rapport with my vet and had that better conversation with him, it's been a great journey because I'm like, oh, actually, he's so knowledgeable. He's, I, I'm, I hope I don't ring him about too many things. I have had some phone calls where I have been laughed at. But I'd rather be have a giggle with him because I'm panicked about something I maybe shouldn't. And I'm not a hypochondriac for my horse at all. It's just occasionally I'm a little ill-informed. But it's awesome to have someone to lean on and have that back and forward with the vet. And, yeah, I yeah. love what you said. You can call them or send a video. And so I think people need to realise that it's not, the boogeyman to call the vet. I definitely used to think in my mind the vet was always the scary, oh, God, what's it going to be? It's always bad news. And in actual fact, the vet is so great at so many different things. Like, yeah, how to keep your horse sound in the long term. I, Whenever I've had him out for other things, I'll often say, oh, and so if I do this sort of exercise, like what is a great aftercare for my horses for that sort of level yeah. of work? and. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that because I, I remember feeling very nervous and, yeah, it's good to hear it from someone that just says just start a build rapport with someone. So, yeah, we're, we're generally not very scary people. We try not to be too scary. Yeah. And I always find the sooner you can get onto something, the less scary it is. The less know, it will cost you, you as well. And the less it will cost you over time and the less you also have to be able to work. You know, if you can get onto a tendon injury in the first you know, a few days, then your recovery time is, is less, is exponentially less than if you leave it for a month, you know, and then the pain, yeah. worse, and yeah. then you've got a big old, you know, hole in your tendon and then it takes six or seven months to rehab, whereas yeah. if you get it right at the start when it's just tweaked it and you can get it on some anti-inflammatories and rest and you can get it back and going in a couple of months. So yeah. I think that's, yeah, that's one of the big things I would say is we're not the scary people. That, not uh, at all. We have been in the past. Yeah, no, definitely not. Now, speaking of, you know, people calling up panicked about their fur children, just in all sorts of crazy mindsets. I mean, I've definitely done those phone calls ringing in a total panic. And when you've had clients in the past, for instance, and, you know, it's a really long rehab process for them and their horse and things like that, like, do you find that you end up as a little bit of a counsellor at times, encouraging people. What do you say to people? Yeah, look, I think open communication and setting expectations is a is a massive part of it. I know in the past it was all very, you know, oh, you, you don't explain everything to the owner because then you don't want them to have the knowledge that, that you have because you're a vet so you need to know. Like they're only on a need-to-know basis. Whereas I think what really helps owners is actually just saying to them, look, this is what is wrong with your horse and here is a step-by-step process of how we're going to fix it and in that process, this is what will happen in an ideal world. You know, obviously not all rehab programs go to plan. Yeah. Um, But I think just being open and making the owner feel really a part of the plan. Yeah. You know, where it's not just a go put your horse out in that, uh, you know, go put your horse in that stable and I will come back and check it and you just leave it alone. Yeah. Getting involved in the rehab program, explaining to them, you know, people aren't stupid. You explain to them what's going on. And a lot of horse people have done bits and pieces of study and they know, you know, you know the basic makeup of tendons and where the, you know, tendons and muscles and ligaments are in your horse. And if you actually involve them in the process and explain to them what you're doing, I find that it makes them feel more empowered and generally when you feel more empowered you feel more in control and then if you're in control you feel more relaxed whereas if everything feels out of control and you're like 
I don't know when my horse is ever going to get better. If it's ever going to get better, I'm never going to be able to ride it again. Yeah. I don't know what's going on with it. I don't know what's happening. But I think if you can really just communicate, just be a person and say, like, I get it. This really sucks. I'm sorry that it's happened to you, whether or not it's at an event or not, or you're leading up to some competition, just saying this is the process it's going to go through. And I think, too, just saying to them, look, in all reality, just be honest. If this horse is going to recover, most likely, or it's not. Yeah. And not stringing people out and saying, you know, in your mind, oh, I don't think this horse is going to come good. I think even if we spend six months rehabbing it, it's still going to be lame. Yeah. Then you're better off and the person will respect you more if you simply say, look, I'm really sorry, but in my experience, this kind of injury doesn't come good. Yeah, you know, it might or be a trail horse or it might be, you know, you might get a paddock sound or you might yeah. get it. It's got arthritis and you're currently show jumping at a metre 30 and probably you'll have to only show jump this horse to a metre 10. And yeah. so if that's not going to be something you want to do, then sell it to somebody else as an opportunity. For them to but learn, yeah. may yeah. not be a, you know, competition horse. But I think just just involving people in the plan and making them a part of the plan rather than just working over their head or around them and trying to be all lofty and secretive, just just tell people what it, what it is, get them on board. And I think from a rider's perspective, you need to stop and just be open and go, okay, this is reality. I'll just listen. I'll take a breath and don't stress out too badly until I know as much as I can work through yeah. it. And yeah. So just before I get through to the end of our show today, I just, I'm dying to know, are we getting back into riding ourselves? Uh, look, I'd really like to. I you miss not it? Sure. I do. And I do jump in the saddle every now and then with friends. Um, obviously, obviously I know a lot of people who have horses. <laughs> Plenty. So I have had some very generous friends let me come out riding with them. So I've been in the saddle. I'm not, I haven't been completely devoid of riding. But in terms of horse ownership, I think that's probably a little bit of a ways down the track. Yeah, um, with such young, a young family. And, yep. It's got a lot of work to do. And it, at this point, I love going out riding, going out hacking with friends. But I spend so much time with horses every day. At the end of the day, I've got to be honest, looking at a horse is not something that's high on my list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it kind of almost burns you out for any extracurricular yep. activities. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love I love my horses during the day and I really enjoy doing horse stuff and talking to horse people and then I just come home and go and do my bar class or go swim in an ocean pool or something. Nice. Yeah. Nice. All right, well, before we do wrap it up as well, I will get into our question and answer at the end, so it's just a bit of a quick-fire question and answer. So what is your absolute favourite? and least favourite things about life with horses? Oh, look, my absolute favourite would have to be just being outside and the people that I get to deal with in, in, a, in conjunction with the horses. Yeah. But just being outside chatting with people that are great. Horse people are great people. Yeah, I think so, so too. <laughs> yep. And look, very, like, not exactly horse-related, but the, my least favourite thing, particularly at the moment, is the flies. Yeah. Can't. They're everywhere. They're in my car, horses and flies are just and hand in hand. And I've I been finding that I've been getting bitten so mm. much lately, like, you know, by the, is it the marsh yep. flies? They've just been getting me all the time. Oh. I have welts yep. everywhere. Yep, they're intense. Yep. All right. What is one piece of advice that you would give your younger self if you could go back? Trust your gut. Go, go with what you feel is right. Just throw yourself into it. Yep. Don't let don't let people tell you you can't do it. If you want to, just run after it. Yeah, nice. And what is your favorite hobby? Oh, being outside, camping, hiking with my family. <laughs> cool, I love it. There's definitely clearly a theme here. Clearly a theme. So, and what is your favorite memory or achievement? I can't really top getting accepted into vet school. To be yeah. fair, it was something that once I wanted to do it, I really wanted to do it and just getting that, opening that link in the, you know, on the email and having say, yes, we want we want you. Yeah. It, that was a pretty great feeling. Yeah. And the um, it's a pretty hard road to get into vet school alone, isn't it, let alone the course? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they don't take a lot of people. So, yeah. I know. I was, I was, that was very good. Cool. 
So where online can we find you or follow the journey of the practice? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got a website. We are getting better at updating it. So that's just uh, sydneyequine.com.au. Yep. Uh, And then we are on Facebook and Instagram at Sydney Equine Practice. Nice. And so did you have any people that you'd like to mention? Oh, the people we sponsor, we're so proud of them. I mean, honestly. Yeah, tell us all your writers that you've got. I mean, we sponsor Katie Taliana and we sponsor JPR and, look, we're just ecstatic with how well they're both going and couldn't be happier to be partnered with them. And then we also are partnering with Barrel Dressage. Oh, very um, cool. We're sponsoring them as well and just, like, love being able to get into the community and support the people that we do work for and give back, um, you know, in ways that we can be helpful. Yeah, I think that's so important to be able to give back when we get so much out of it ourselves. So um, now, is there any other topics that we didn't cover or any last words of wisdom that you would like to offer? Look, I think you've done a good job and I think I've probably talked too much in all of this. Um, Not at all. (laughs) I think definitely make friends with your vet. There are lots of good vets out there and we'd love to talk to you and don't be afraid to just reach out and ask questions. You're always happy to, to have a chat and it doesn't have to cost you. To just ring up and have a chat yeah. if you're worried about something, if you want us to come out and look at something, we can. But, yeah, I think just, yeah, make friends with your vet. Yeah. And if it's not working, it's the same with coaches and adjustment exactly. centers and everything. Look around. Find someone that suits yeah. you and matches you. I love yeah, that. If you, find, if you find you can't make friends with your vet, find a new vet. Yes. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for coming on the show. It's been awesome and it's a really awesome different angle as well to look at it from you know your perspective obviously you know you might not be riding at the moment but you're putting so much in and you're so involved in the equestrian community so it's been an awesome way to look at it so thank you so much oh no thank you for having me on it's been really great um yeah i really like the podcast i think you're doing a great job oh thank you so much thanks for listening in to another episode of the approachable equestrian podcast If you loved anything that you heard today, remember to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Also, if you could take a couple of seconds just to leave a rating and review, it would absolutely mean the world to me. And also, it'll help others like you find the podcast and hopefully help them on their journey. Until next time, have the best day and I'll see you all again soon.